Revelation eleven fifteen, reading to the end of the chapter. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All right, everybody doing okay? Might need a water break? All right, I see how well you can stay awake now. The sun's beating down on you. Everybody in their sunglasses that can't tell awake who's awake or not. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, so as uh, you know, as we come to God's Word this morning, we're mindful, as Andrew play- prayed, that, uh, man, it's a heavy week. It's a heavy week on a personal level, right, because some of our people are mourning the loss of some dearly, uh, dear loved ones. Uh, but then it's just a particularly heinous week, you know, that we're enduring and, and carrying heavily as, right, as an American people. I think sometimes we get numb to, uh, you know, these mass shootings that we hear, or all the gun violence up in North Philly. But, man, when somebody terrorizes an elementary school and kills 19 little kids and two uh, teachers and plunges a community and families into unimaginable kind of grief, it, it kind of like it wakes us back up to the horror of this and the depravity of, of this and the brokenness. Uh, yet that still just is rampant uh, throughout life and creation. And actually, it was, I think, the day after all this went down in Baldy, Texas, that uh, a report came out of the Southern Baptist denomination. Maybe, maybe you heard this, but, you know, one of the largest evangelical denominations in the country. Uh, just this horrifying report of years of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse by pastors and leaders. And what was even worse is just the systemic cover-up that took place. Some 700 reported instances of sexual misconduct, sexual abuse that was reported, filed away, and systemically just covered up in the name of protecting the reputation of the Southern Baptist denomination or protecting, you know, the the denomination from financial litigation or protecting the missions organization or, or whatever. You know, when you just think about the, you know, the lingering pain that that causes for, you know, victims and survivors of that, or you just think about the, the way some of these pastors weren't allowed to just kind of go and to serve into other churches without any, I don't know, any care or any counsel or whatever. And he just realized that there's just still this, just this depth of depravity. And, you know, even among God's people, it's just the sense of things just terribly broken and not right, which, you know, on occasion we're just kind of woken back up to. Even in the midst of a beauty of a day like today, we're just mindful here. We come, all come, carrying that heaviness of the events of the past week. Which is all to say that it's somewhat, um, at least it felt a little bit odd or out of place to be preaching on a, a, a passage of celebration. That's what our passage is today. It's a song of celebration, of gratitude, of worship to God for all that he's done. And there's a part of it that just feels a little bit emotionally out of place. 
right? Because anybody who's carrying that heaviness or anybody who's certainly feeling that heaviness in any kind of personal way uh, sometimes has a hard time celebrating and worshiping and extending gratitude to the Creator. So there's that this morning as we come to this text. Yet, I do think it is a text just like this. That's exactly what we need to be reminded of uh, in days like this. Right? This is a passage that is all about the Christian hope. And I think it's the Christian hope alone that can ground us. And not only ground us, but give us a humble confidence in what is to come and give us a humble confidence to press into what is coming, press into what our responsibility and our job is yet in a broken world, knowing that this hope is, is certain. And so my simple uh, intent this morning is just to unpack uh, this hope as it's laid out for us here, at least in Revelation 11, and then just to make a few comments about uh, how it should, one, ground us, but then give us that humble confidence to press into what our calling is yet in a dark and broken world. Okay? So that's our goal. Let's talk our way through it. Uh, we're here at the end of the seven trumpets, right? Uh, which means, as we've been saying, as we come to the end of this cycle of seven, that we have come symbolically now to the end of the end point of history, right? Or the end of the age, right? Just that reminder that we give each week that, you know, Revelation, uh, at least in, in, in my view here, uh, it doesn't unfold in this sequential, uh, linear unfolding of events, but rather it, 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 it unfolds in cycles and sequences. And we are given these multiple looks into this one unfolding plan of God to bring history to his appointed end for it. Right? And so here we are at the end of another cycle of seven, the seven trumpets, which means we've come to the end of history, to the end point. And then whenever we get back into the book of Revelation and we pick back up again in chapter 12, you'll see very clearly we're going all the way back uh, to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and kind of starting all over again from another uh, slightly different angle. Okay? But so here we are at the end. The seventh trumpet blows. And if you remember the seventh seal, when that, you know, was ripped open, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Uh, this time when the seventh trumpet blows, all of heaven erupts in praise and celebration. And it erupts in this, uh, this declaration, right, that the kingdom of this world has become now the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and that he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, you maybe remember uh, several years ago, five, six, seven years, I don't know what it was, the flash mobs were kind of all the rage. I don't know if you ever would have seen these on YouTube, YouTube or whatever, where people uh, would organize maybe via social media or whatever, that they were going to group up and they were going to meet up in public places and just kind of hide themselves among the crowd. And at a particular point in time, uh, all these people scattered about these crowds would just kind of launch into either a song or some kind of dance or funny skit or whatever and just catch everybody unaware and it was just, and cameras would be there to pick it up and it'd be kind of humorous, right? Uh, and there were a couple of times where 
I think Marie Paolucci sent me one of these videos. She is Marie here today. I don't know, but she sent me a video of one of these flash mobs uh, inside a. Uh, it might have been Mall of America. I'm not sure, but in the great courtyard in one of these malls. It was around Christmas time. Uh, this flash mob had prearranged. It was a choir. It was one of the local symphony choirs, whatever, and they were interspersed among the crowd. And at a set point in time, they broke out in the Hallelujah chorus. Right. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Right, that one. And the actual text of that hallelujah chorus, uh, it comes from this passage, right? Everybody's responding in hallelujah because the main text, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. And, right? You remember, now remember how that goes? Come on. It's my classical music. Frederick Handel. All, hey, come on. Uh, and so, you know, it was a, you know, it's a, it's a fun time and everybody's, you know, listening to these, you know, these, these, choir members sing, and it's a great festive thing in the holiday spirit. But, you know, as you're watching this, there's also something very poignant about this, too, where, you know, here in the very epicenter of, you know, American consumeristic culture, right, as the the mall is jam-packed with everybody buying up their gifts and their presents and all this stuff, right, outbreaks this radically subversive chorus, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I think that was kind of probably lost, maybe even on the people singing it right there, but it's such a poignant moment here in the courtyard of the great American mall, this radically subversive, inspiring picture of hope. You know, and uh, so this launches heaven into this you know, frenzy of celebration and gratitude. And maybe just to get at a little bit why this is such occasion for celebration, uh, I, I want to stress the singularity of this word kingdom in the text. And I guess part of the reason I want to do that is because in case any of you are reading from your King James Bible, uh, the King James there actually has it translated in the plural. The kingdoms of this world have all become kingdoms of God and of our Christ. Uh, and actually, I don't want to get into a long a long deal with it, but uh, that's actually uh, a mistake that the uh, the King James Bible there is translating from uh, one of the wrong Greek manuscripts. Virtually every other Greek manuscript that we have uh, has that word kingdom in the singular. And the reason why that's so important is because it's actually a profound theological point there being made. That it's not that... All the various little kingdoms and nations and states and governments of the world have decided, okay, we're going to come under the reign of Jesus so that he can reign over all these different little kingdoms and all these different little states and empires and whatnot. No, the picture here is more that God has come and he's established his reign in such a way that he has swept up the full kingdom of the world and he has reclaimed it. As his kingdom. He has reclaimed it as the domain of his reign. He has reclaimed it as his rightful abode with his people. Or in other words, another way to put this is that he has come and he has reclaimed everything that was lost. Back when, you know, Adam and Eve took that fruit and ate it. Back when Adam and Eve decided to listen to the voice of God's enemies, God's enemy, and give that voice ultimate authority in their life and to submit in obedience to that. 
right? Or everything that was lost when Adam and Eve decided to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and decide instead of entrusting themselves to their creator to define what is good and right and evil and unjust. Instead thought, nah, it probably would be better if we made those decisions ourselves and we decided what was good and right and evil and unjust and live life on our own terms. He's coming and reclaiming everything that was lost when Adam and Eve plunged the world into shame, accusation, violence, death, immorality, injustice, right? Everything that fills the early pages of the biblical narrative, right? God is coming to claim this kingdom that was handed over to God's enemies by the caretakers, by the stewards, by the ones who are supposed to govern it on God's behalf. God is coming to reclaim it, to take it through the second Adam, through his Christ. And through Christ now, he will claim it and reign over it forever and ever. Every now and then, a very rare occasion, We'll, we'll kick Amy out of the house. We'll send her away for a couple of days just to maybe escape some of the craziness of the house and just go spend some time herself, wherever, somewhere. Uh, and it's usually, uh, I think, a good time for her. Uh, it's a little bit of a precarious time uh, in the house because the house now comes over the uh, full-time permanent management of, of daddy. And uh, that's kind of precarious. There's a slight wondering if we're going to survive this. And there's great joy and celebration uh, when thankfully thus far, mom has always decided to come back home <laughs> and the house comes back into order and everything is okay and we know we're going to make it and we're going to survive. <laughs> That's sort of the picture here, right? That God's kingdom has been handed over by the caretakers and by the stewards and it's been handed into all sorts of brokenness and corruption and death. But yet God is intent on reclaiming it reclaiming what was rightfully his from the beginning, reclaiming it through the second Adam, the faithful Adam in his life, death and resurrection and reigning over it forever and ever. You know, and, uh, you know, you could say this, that the whole biblical storyline from Genesis three on really is aiming to this point when that kingdom would be restored and reclaimed by its rightful owner. And here's where maybe I'll give my broken record spiel. At least I hope it's starting to sound like a broken record around here. I'm going to emphasize it over and over. We were just talking about it in our grace group a couple weeks ago. That the end goal of the Bible, the end goal of the biblical storyline is not Christians drifting off into heaven for all eternity. Right? The end goal of the Bible is the God of creation reclaiming his earthly kingdom. And yeah, sure, you know, when Christ's followers die, sure, they are gathered up into the eternal, into the heavenly throne room, into the presence of Jesus Christ. We see that very clearly in the book of Revelation. They're given white robes. They're told to rest a while. Yet it's also very clear in the book of Revelation that that's not the end, right? It's always very clear. This is only for a time. And you even have the saints gathered around the throne in heaven saying, how long, O oh Lord, until we have to wait in this in-between period? Right? When you get to the closing pages of the book, all of heaven is emptied out. And the great heavenly city comes down from heaven to earth, and a loud voice then declares, at last, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? I'll, I'll simply say that what you're getting here in chapter 11, it's like a preview of the ultimate goal of the creator God coming and reclaiming his creation, which causes all of heaven to erupt. 
and which cause arts cause us to be uh, joyful and celebratory and thankful as well too, right? This is great news. And I think we know that. We know that in our bones that this is good news, right? Because we know, I mean, look at you come out on a day like today where the sun's shining, nice spring day, the birds are chirping, flowers are in bloom, allergies are kicking in or whatever, you know, and, and you're gathered together, friends, family, loved ones, celebrating the goodness of God, right? We know that there is a goodness and there is a richness and there is a beauty to life. Right? A richness and a goodness and a beauty that has been marred by injustice, that has been marred by violence, that has been marred by that sting of death. But yet we know that that is not right and it's not good precisely because we know that we were made for the goodness and the beauty and the richness of God's creation. And so deep in our bones, it doesn't matter who you are, all of us long for this brokenness to be made right. Which is all to say, can you see why when the declaration is made that here at the end, at the blast of the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is cause for celebration. So that's the first reason you got celebration here. There's two more reasons in the text. The second one is that God's going to judge. The text says the nations raged. The time for your wrath has come. Time to judge the dead. Time to reward the saints, those who followed you faithfully. The time for destroying the destroyers of the earth, the text says. And actually, when I think about this, like this passage here, this sort of brings to culmination some of the great cries and the prayers of, you know, I think of like the psalmist who, you know, would, would write these prayers and these psalms pleading with God, God, how long are you going to sit by idly while your enemies ravage your holy places, destroy your cities, wreak havoc in the lives of your people? You know, I think about Psalm 74. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Don't deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Don't forget the life of your poor. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of habitations and violence. And then he pleads with God, rise, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Don't forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, and which goes up continually. And so what you also have in this passage is that those great prayers, the great longing of God's people all throughout the ages, that too now is coming to culmination where the nations have raged and the nations have done everything they could possibly do to subvert God's intentions, to seize power, to seize control, to go at life and to take creation all in their own control, uh, uh, their own, their own intentions. But the day of God's wrath has come and the day to judge has come. You know, and we've talked about this, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit more as we work our way through the book, right? Because this is a book of God's purposes coming to fruition and all the good, goodness associated with that. But it's also, it's that in the, in, the, in, the, in the context of conflict and warfare, right? It's God having to wrestle that creation away from the hands of his enemies, right? So it is God having to come in all of his fury and all of his wrath and all of his judgment, 
which can be uncomfortable. You know, we love to think of God and his unrelenting mercy and his love and his compassion and his enduring patience. We don't like to think of God as God full of fury and wrath and vengeance. Right, but on the other hand, I would think today of all days, you know, on the heels of this week, like any other, more than any other week, right? We, we would understand this idea that, yeah, no, we want somebody at some point in history to come and to judge, to call evil what it is, and to unveil the might of his arm and to eradicate that from his creation. Right? Maybe we would know today of all days that we long for someone to judge. That's what to judge means. It means to declare something in the right or in the wrong, right? To call evil what it is, call a spade a spade, and to deal with it. Right? Any God who perpetually, indefinitely, looks in the face of violence and death, looks in the face of atrocities of young innocent kids losing their lives at the hand of a madman and the, the intense pain that that plunges a community. Any God that stares at that, looks at that and says, ah, what are you going to do? It's not a good God, and it's not a God who's worth your time. Right? And if you... And, you know, we've said this before, that if you can't see that, or if you can't see why it's good news that the God, that God would come with wrath against his enemies and judge, then I, I might just say to you again that that's probably because you've lived a life of privilege, where you've lived a life of abundant resources, where you've managed on your own power to make life just good and okay. But if that's not the case, and you're someone who's suffered poverty, or who suffered injustice, or who su- suffered systemic evil. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you want a God who's going to come in all his fury and make that right. Call it what it is and judge it. Which again uh, is why the heavenly courts erupt in praise and thanksgiving. The cries, the longing of the psalmist, the cries, the longings of God's people, all throughout the ages are finally being answered. The time for destroying the destroyers of the earth has come. And I like that little line there. Uh, I, I think that's probably one of the best ways of understanding the idea of God's judgment uh, throughout the book of Revelation. God's judgment doesn't come just because he's a, a capricious God and all of a sudden, you know, the sins of God's people or the sins of people, sorry, uh, you know, annoy him or tick him off enough. They say, all right, that's enough. Enough of this. I'm just going to come in judgment. No, again. It's the creator who has retained ownership rights of his creation. As his patience has run out, finally coming and saying, enough with those who are hell-bent on destroying my creation, destroying my kingdom, destroying my people. Those whose sole intent is to take and to seize and to destroy my creation. My intention will be to judge and to eradicate you from my creation. A somber picture. But again, uh, it's good news. Because it's good news that one day, evil Injustice, violence, and death will be fully eradicated from the face of the earth, from the face of God's kingdom. Uh, the last little reason for celebration here. Actually, we just get a little snippet of it at the end 
Uh, actually, as I think about it, it feels to me sort of like, you know, if you're ever watching a TV show uh, or maybe a movie and you come to the end of the show or the end of the movie and everything has been brought to conclusion, bad guys have been defeated, the problems have been solved. But then just before we fade to black and the credits start to roll or whatever, uh, just one little thing is introduced at the very end and... It's just enough to, to grab our attention, make our head spin and say, well, wait a second, what was all that about? And you realize, ah, oh, there's more to come and maybe there's going to be a sequel or something. And I think that's what happens here at the very end, right? We're told the last bit of thing that happens here is that the heavenly temple, symbolic heavenly temple, is opened up and we catch a picture, we catch a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and the great hailstorm, right? Which signals again, as it does every time we come to the end of one of these sequences, that we've reached the end, and we're going to start back all over again. But right before that end comes, as you pick it up, the, the curtain is open, the, tent, uh, the, the heavenly temple is open, and we catch a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant. And you say, well, wait a minute, what's the deal with that? <laughs> or, or why are we catching a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant here? And then, boom, we're just going right back into the peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and so forth. And the thing is, uh, we are, we're being introduced to one more bit of good news here, which will be elaborated a little bit more fully in some of the following sequences as they come back around. You know, but when you think about it, what was the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was this box overlaid with gold, and inside of it was, you know, the Book of the Covenant, the Book of the Law that God gave to his people when he, you know, entered into covenant relationship with them. Okay, but uh, the Ark of the Covenant also, it was the sacred throne, right? That was in the back room of the temple, right? It was that golden box that had on top of it, right, these guardian cherubim with their wings unfurled, protecting the sacred space that it was, right? It was the place where uh, the Shekinah glory of God rested in that back room of that temple, right? And this Ark of the Covenant, it was... It was shielded and it was blocked off by this really thick curtain. And only one time a year right, could one man, great high priest, after making sufficient sacrifices and going through all the you know, ritual cleansing processes, could that man one time, one day a year, enter in behind that thick curtain to make uh, supplication and sacrifice on behalf of his people, Right? And so it's, it's really a cool picture here, a cool symbolic picture here, that at the close of all this, not only are the enemies defeated and the problems solved, but it's like the temple is opened. And that Ark of the Covenant, which before just the great high priest would only see one day of the year, now is available for all to see. In other words, whatever barrier or whatever hindrance there may have been previously to full uninterrupted communion and relationship with the living God, whatever such barrier might have previously existed, that's been completely done away with. And now it is for God's people to freely enjoy unending, uninterrupted communion with the living God, with their creator. Right, again, this is a picture that's going to um, 
get unpacked in even greater detail, especially when we get to those closing chapters where all of heaven comes down. And, and there is actually no need for a temple because God is in their midst all the time. And that loud voice says, God's dwelling place is with man, right? That's also what all of history is aiming at. The removal of any barrier, any hindrance, of any obstacle that gets in the way of full, uninterrupted communion and enjoyment of the Creator God by His people. You know, which also gets at how, you know, another great, great aspect of this coming restoration is that the problem of sin and brokenness that resides in our hearts, that resides in my heart, will be fully done away with in, in, in entirety. Right? We know now that by the blood of Christ, that sin has been fully paid for, fully atoned for, and yet we still wrestle with it. We still struggle with it. We still deal with its cursedness in, in our lives and how it wreaks havoc in our relationships and how it at times uh, presents these seeming barriers to our full enjoyment of our Creator. And yet a day is coming when the things that are not right in our own hearts will be fully done away with. You know, in this great picture of restoration, not only will all the brokenness of creation out there be fully eradicated and dissolved, but all the brokenness and not rightness in here will be fully dealt with, fully eradicated, fully dissolved into resurrection life in all of its glory. And see, for anybody who understands and who feels that the brokenness of the world is not just an out there problem, but it's also an in here problem, this is good news. That day is coming when all of God's people, as the old hymn says, will be saved fully to sin no more. That's good news for all of us gathered. And I would often say that it's good news if any of you are here as well this morning and you're maybe curious about Christianity, you're here by invitation of a friend or family member, or you're watching online, just curious what all this business of following Jesus is about. And maybe as you hear of God's intentions to reclaim his creation and to eradicate from it everything that is not right, everything that is not yielded to him, maybe that provokes a certain sense of uh, conviction in you. Right, and here's where I would say, okay, so this Ark of the Covenant, this picture here is a little bit of good news as well for you too. Because right on top of that Ark of the Covenant would also be the, the mercy seat. The Shekinah glory of God would rest over top the mercy seat that sat atop the books of the covenant. Right? It would be that mercy seat that would have all sorts of bloodstains on it. Bloodstains from lambs and bulls and goats that the high priest would bring in to make atonement and propitiation for the sins of, his, of God's people. Right? Because God's people weren't perfect. There was, they were inheritors of the brokenness that was out there, was in their lives. They were some of the destroyers of the earth as well, too. In order for God to establish his presence with them, to not, uh, leash out in his wrath, a sacrificial lamb needed to be slaughtered and the blood needed to be spilled on this mercy seat, this atonement cover. All right? And that, of course, was just, uh, a symbolic foreshadowing of the ground that would be blood spattered underneath the cross of Christ. This Jesus who came and in this wild love for his people, wild love for sinners and rebels and traitors, 
would lay down his life and offer up his life as the full and final sufficient atoning sacrifice for all those who would entrust their lives to him. All right, so if you're curious about what it means to follow Jesus or to get in on this great picture of hope, uh, what it first of all means is that you see this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the center point of it all, and you entrust your life to that as the sole solution to your sin problem. And man, as you do that, as you see that, as you claim that, as you believe that, and you entrust your life to that, your sins are atoned for. Your sins are covered. Man, and as the book of Revelation would say in numerous places, you are sealed for this great day of restoration that is yet to come. So there's just so much good news in this passage. You see why there's uh, celebration and gratitude and worship and response. And maybe just as we close this, I would just say, you know, it should encourage us in the midst of, you know, the brokenness, the pain, the sting that pervades life, right? Again, it should encourage us that this is not just all pointless, random, you know, endless brokenness, but that God is in the process, beginning with the resurrection of Jesus, of gathering up all of his creation and fully restoring it and reclaiming it as his eternal kingdom. And that should encourage us and should give us hope and confidence. And that's the other point. It should give us a sort of humble confidence to press into what is our calling together as the church. I was reading this week about part of the difference between millennials and Generation Z, Gen Z, right? And part of the difference, at least, is that millennials entered into the world or entered out of high school or entered out of the world out of college with just unbridled optimism, Right? They had high self-esteem. They were ready to conquer the world. They were confident that they could make a difference in this world and make positive change and see the world progress in, in, in great ways, all because of their skills and efforts and expertise. Uh, Gen Z has come along uh, with a little bit more, it looks at that as naive. <laughs> and Gen Z comes along with a little bit more of a pessimistic view. Uh, Gen Z is coming of age uh, in the day of Right, all these critical theories, which are bringing to light systemic injustice. I mean, if you don't believe in systemic injustice, just look at the way it's ravaging the Southern Baptist denomination right now. If it can happen in God's people, it can happen beyond that, right? And so Gen Z comes of age where they're just being exposed to all the systemic injustice. And that's leading to this pessimism and this laughing in the face almost of the millennials. Who do you think you are that you can just not, you think that you're going to make a difference. You're going to change the world for the better. And there's almost this resignation sometimes in Gen Z. There's this great anxiety. There's this great fear among the young people, among Gen Z. You know, and I think this, this picture of biblical hope, it offers a third way. Uh, it, right? It, it doesn't lead to this almost sort of unbridled confidence, dare we even say like a naive, maybe arrogant confidence that I'm going to make a difference in the world, right? Because it's very clear, yes, hope is coming, change and renewal and restoration is coming, but it's God who does it, right? We are not the ones who have the power to stem the tide of evil and violence and injustice. That's something that God has to do and is going to do. Okay, yet at the same time, it it ought not to lead to this sort of resigned pessimism either 
because what you see all throughout the book of, the Re- of Revelation is that God is intent on bringing that to happen, both through Christ and his spirit, but then also through his spirit-filled people. So actually, there is a role that we have to play. And we actually are called to enter into this broken world and be vessels of the grace of Christ. It's not that we accomplish it. It's God's power working through us. But that is God's intention, to accomplish his kingdom goal through the faithful life and witness of the church. Right? Remember what the whole seven trumpets were all about. Right? Trumpets one through six were aimed at exposing you know, the, the emptiness of idolatry, of exposing the corruption of idolatry and how it was actually partnering with God's enemies, the, the beast from the pits of hell, right? And yet, even as that is exposed into broad daylight and people are suffering that and living that out, yet they would not turn and repent. And yet they would not turn from worshiping demons, even the text said, at the end of the sixth trumpet. And then we get to that interlude where the seven thunders roar and John's about to write down in his book the message of the seven thunders, but the angel comes and says, no, 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 don't write that down. Seal that up. We're going to go in a different direction here. And he gives John a scroll to eat, which is sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. And we saw last week what the plan of that scroll was, that God's people would testify to the truth, to the love, of Jesus Christ. And they would do that in the face of opposition. They would do that in the face of a broken world. And to do that in the face of the enemies of God, which would overcome them. Such that they would feel the trampling and the sting of that violence and death. And yet, in their faithfulness to this Christ, in their faithfulness to give witness and testimony to the truth of Christ, to the love of Christ, in sacrificial way, what happens at the end of it? God is faithful to the church, and all those who are there, minus a tenth of the city, turn, fear the living God, and give him glory. What the whole book has been aiming for. We talked about that. It's as the church follows in the way of the king, the king himself, who came and who suffered sacrificially at the hands of evil and violent men and regimes and systems and did all of that as the ultimate act of turning, flipping evil on its head and launching the greatest kingdom victory in all of God's creation, right? As the church follows that and suffers faithfully the way Christ did and experiences the faithfulness of God and response, this is what God uses to bring the nations to himself. Which is all simply to say here this morning, we have reason to feel heavy, to be saddened by the sting of death, violence, injustice, all that wreaks havoc in God's good creation. And yet we have reason to be optimistic and to have hope Because God has said, this is my creation, and I have not relinquished it, and I will come and reclaim it one day. And when I do that, my reign will be over all forever and ever. And no longer will there be any barrier, any hindrance to full, uninterrupted communion and fellowship, enjoyment of me with my people. And that should lead us into humble confidence, pressing deeper in the midst of this broken world, going faithfully at the things that God has called us to as a church, giving faithful witness, even maybe sacrificial faithful witness to the truth and to the love of Christ, praying that God would take it and use it for this great kingdom end.
And so we pray that God would accomplish that in our lives together as a church, but then out through that, out through us, sorry, in our relationships with friends and neighbors and coworkers, wherever God would send us until that great day of full and final restoration. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.